You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Well, hello everybody. And my name is Anna Carey, and I am delighted to be here to talk to Liz tonight. Um, through her, her fiction and her autobiographical writing and her journalism and even her Instagram posts, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert has made us think and made us feel and made us see the world in uh, a little bit differently and, and sometimes I think a little bit more kindly. Mm. And uh, all these qualities are, are very evident in her new novel, City of Girls, which we are going to talk about tonight, among many other things. But when you were last here in Dublin, which was back in 2015, you said that you were working on a book that was set in 1940s New York uh, theater world about showgirls who were not punished or destroyed by their sexual adventures and their promiscuity, for want of, of another word. What triggered the desire to write about this and in this setting? Well, the, um, uh, first of all, it's so good to see you again. Oh, well, it's so good and to I'm see you. And I'm very, very excited by all your accomplishments since oh. the last time I saw you. Thank you. You should be proud of her. <laughs> she is amazing. She is amazing. Um, so I have wanted for years to write a novel or a story of some sort about promiscuous girls whose lives are not ruined by their terrible, terrible sexual choices. <laughs> I don't know what possibly compelled me to want to write this story, um, but it's something I heard about once. Um, but, but it's partially, it's like a, it's a response to, um, okay, let's just say all of the Western canon of, of literature, which has this trope of the ruined woman, and mm. it's a very good story. The, the trope of the woman, ruined woman is very, very good drama. It's very good tragedy, and and you know we know it. It's Anna Karenina, and it's Hedda Gabler, and it's and it's Emma Bovary, and it's all of Henry James, and and essentially it's like nice girl, very pretty, doing okay. Ooh, ooh desire, drift, make a risk, have one <laughs> orgasm under the wheels of the train, <laughs> under the wheels of the fucking train. It's like. I hope you enjoyed your one orgasm, you know? And it's like, come on, you guys. You know, it's so brutal. And truly, obviously, it is the case that the sexual standard for women has traditionally also been very brutal. But not just in today's day, but I think mm. in a lot of history, women actually... The real story is that women tend to survive it. Mm. Um, we tend not to be ruined by it. Or um, train. And tend to manage to avoid being under the mm. wheels of the train. And, and the simple evidence of that, I like to say, is that if women were not capable of surviving the terrible, stupid, foolish, reckless decisions and encounters that they have around sex and romance, there would scarcely be a woman left alive <laughs> in the world. You know, so I wanted to tell that story about you know the women who I know and the women who I love and the dumb, crazy shit that we've done and how mm. by the end of it, like, it's not to say that there's no consequences. Mm. It's just to say that I believe that women can survive their own consequences. I believe that women can survive a very, very great deal. And not only survive, but at some point in their life see that all of this was part of their seasoning mm. of turning them into much, much, much more interesting people than they might have been otherwise. Mm. And that's what this book's about. And it is uh, about, you know, somebody who follows her own 
desires. You know, she, she is driving this sexual adventure. It's not something that just happens to her. How important was that element of it to, um, to you, to, to write about female desire? Yeah, more important than ever, I think, to tell that story. Um, you know, female sexual desire is something that the world has never really known what to do with. Mm. <laughs> um, it makes the world extremely uncomfortable, and it yeah. makes culture extremely uncomfortable. It makes society extremely uncomfortable. It often makes the woman herself who in, is in possession of it extremely uncomfortable. We often don't know what to do with it ourselves. Mm. Um, you know, it's a very powerful, muscular, dark force, and I don't mean dark in the terms of sin, I mean dark in the terms of primal. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I am very familiar with what it feels like. I know what it feels like to be in the thrall of it. I know what it feels like to be a woman who at certain seasons of your life is more predator than prey. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't like the fact that the only, I just do. And I don't <laughs> think it, you know, I know, that, I know what it feels like. I know what it feels like to like look across the room and be like, wow. I want that, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, and when you and and I also know that women can behave can behave terribly mm. around desire, um, and and all of that is, I feel it's so important. And, and I wrote this book. I started this book long before the Me Too movement. And I and I want to just lay the foundation of saying that I am in absolute support of the Me Too movement. I think it is um, a brilliant and powerful and long overdue expression of female rage and injustice. It's so necessary and I'm such a supporter of it. And it's not a but, it's an and. I don't like the fact, I think we have to be wary of having the only conversation about female sexuality being about consent versus not consent. Um, consent is incredibly important. It's not the only expression of female of female sexuality. There is also such a thing as female lust. There's also such a thing as female desire. There's also such a thing as female agency. Um, there's also such a thing as women hurting men. All of this can happen um, at the, very much. And so that's, I didn't change the story because of Me Too. I told the same story that I wanted to tell, but it was interesting that it's just coming out being published at this exact moment. As, and it's not to take a single thing away from that movement other than to say, can I just be in a voice in the corner saying, let's not forget um, that women can, uh, that women have incredible, muscular, powerful sexual energies also. Well, yeah. And, and like you say, it's, it's an and, it's not an a and. but. It's not a but. Yeah. It's not a refuting. And it's just an, let's just keep the scale wide, yeah. keep the scope wide. Let's keep all of it in the picture as we're discussing this incredibly important thing about consent. And, and as you say in the book, you know, it's not, uh, or as Vivian expresses or, or expresses by her actions in the book, it's about saying yes to things. You know, it's about choosing what she does. Um, which, uh, which she certainly does over yes, the course of the book. Um, some of you will have read it, so we'll try not to be too spoilery, because I know not everybody will have. Yeah. But uh, why did you choose to set it in the world of, of the 1940s? I forgot to life? answer that question. You asked yeah. me that already, <laughs> didn't you? Um, thanks for circling back on that. Yeah. Um, I <laughs> also have always wanted to write a love story to New York. Um, it, it, New York is... is my name, my personal nickname for New York has always been the Great Mother. Um, it's a place that I came to when I was exactly the same age that Vivian comes to New York. Different era, I came mm -hmm. in 1987, she came in 1940. But it's at some level the same city. Mm -hmm. and, and so coming there was this incredible experience for me of feeling like here's the place where I get to become who I actually am rather than what everybody would be comfortable with me being. And I've moved to New York now four times in my life, um, which is to say I've moved out four times and tried very hard to live a life 
that looked like what I was supposed to do and I failed miserably <laughs> at it every single time. And every time I fail at it, New York's like, come on back. <laughs> you know, we could just, we don't care, you know. Um, and, and so I wanted to write about New York, but I also wanted to find the most glamorous possible moment in what I, th what I think of as the most glamorous moment of New York. And New York in 1940, I think, was the epitome of its particular essence of the Big Apple yeah. and the great white way and show business. And, um, and I also wanted to create an environment where these girls plausibly could be this sexual. And the theater, of course, has always been yeah. that place. Yeah. Um, this always had different mores than the regular world. Yeah. It's yeah. a slightly rackety world. Yeah. You can just go veering off. There's a great bit where um, it talks about Vivian and her friend Celia, that they're just, you know, you know, careening along, basically, uh, rocketing through the city. And it's a city of, sort of neon adventure. Testing their beauty against yes. every man they meet. Yeah. <laughs> Which they certainly do. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you, I know you were, you were researching it for, for some time, and then everything changed. And I know, you know, a lot of people here will have heard you speak about this before, but mm -hmm. when your friend, and it seemed to be more than your friend, Rhea, told you that she was very sick, and I know that the book basically didn't seem important. It wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't. I had been researching this for um, almost five years at that point, and I had a plan, this is in 2016, that that spring, that summer, I was setting aside a time, and I felt like I had the, the information that I needed. It takes me a really long time to research a novel, especially mm. a historical novel. It's almost like learning another language, because mm. you want to feel like you speak that language so naturally that you can just sit down and write and not be like, would they say that? Yeah. Like, you, it, you just need to have it kind of in your bones. And, and then I got the call um, from Rhea saying that she... Uh, had they had found these masses in her pancreas and in her liver, and I knew it's ju I just knew instantly that that was it um, that she was dying and this was somebody who had been my best friend for many years, but there was and I, and I was very happily married and and she was my friend and his friend, and we all loved each other and there was there had just come to be a point about five years earlier than that where I lost the ability to find the right word to describe what Rhea yeah. was in my life, and I used to just say that she was my person. And um, that she was the most, and that to me meant the most important person. The, and, and it was only with her diagnosis that I was able to be like, oh, there's actually a word for what this yeah. is. <laughs> this is actually the love of my life. Mm -hmm. um, that's what this word is. And so I shifted everything, left my marriage within weeks of that moment. It was very, it was very fast. It was very clear. Um, and, and I went to be with her for those 18 months and take care of her as she was dying. And the last thing in the world I could imagine caring about was a book about yeah. slutty showgirls in New York City in the 1940s. Yeah. Like, who it's, could begin yeah. to care? Like, yeah. who could begin to care? And, but then something happened very shortly after she died. Well, two things happened. One is the book was due. <laughs> and it was really yeah. due because they'd given me an extension for a year and they made it clear that that extension mm -hmm. wasn't really welcome to be renewed. And, and also something happened in me where I... I just, like the magnet in the sky, told me the best thing that you can do for yourself now in this period of grief is to completely pivot and write the most joyful, light, gay, frolicky, frothsome. I mean, I said to my editor when I turned it in, my goal with this book is that every page goes down like a champagne cocktail. So cut anything that doesn't, because I just <laughs> wanted it to move at that speed. And, and writing and creating that from that place of grief was the healthiest possible thing that I could have done for myself at that moment, weirdly. Um, and I don't, still don't know how 
I knew to do that. I just feel as I was told to do that, and I just followed the instructions, and I'm so glad I did. Because you, you have written in the past in Big Magic just about the importance of sitting down and you know, doing the work, showing up every day and letting the ideas come to you. Uh, and in that time when you were you know, grieving after such a, a brutal and a grueling experience, uh, was it easy to practice what you preached? Did it come instinctively then? Or, or was it a, did you have to keep reminding yourself this is what works and so, this is where the writing comes from? Here, okay. We're all friends here. Can we talk about magic and mysticism for a minute? Um, of course. So this is what I think, and it's just an idea, and it's just a story, but it's a story that has guided my entire life's work. And, and the best way that I can explain it is that I don't really know what is literally the hell going on here on this. I have no idea. It's such a weird experience being a person. It's so weird. It's so weird, you guys. It's so weird. You know this. Like, we're on this ball spinning through space at 67,000 miles an hour around a star. There's nothing around us remotely like us. And they're looking, and it's like, there's really nothing like that. Like, really exceptionally weird, interesting situation happening on this planet. We're primates that were given consciousness. What the fuck? Like, it's so weird. Like, why did they give it to primates? Why didn't they give it, like, we're so violent. Like, why didn't they give it to, like, dolphins or something? Or somebody who would do gooder things with it. Um, Gooder, that's why they pay me the big... There you go. The big dollar is because of the... That's how you get a book deal, kids. Um, it's all so particularly weird. And then you're like, they drop you into like a family and you're like, really? These people? You know, like everything, culture, it's all so, so, so very, very strange. I don't know. And then people die. Why? Like Donald Trump lives, Rhea dies, what? You know, like it doesn't make any, it's all so bizarre. And, and but the one thing that I feel like I kind of see what seems to be happening in the universe is that if the universe could be said to want something, which is a very human thing to think, but if it could be said to want something, it appears to want to create, mm. because that's all it ever does. Like, it started with nothing, and it made something out of it, and then it made something more complex out of it, and then it took that complexity and it expanded into something even more complex, and then it added this, and then it added this, and then it made another thing, and it grows, and it creates, and it expands, and that is literally all it does. It just creates, 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 and when things get destroyed, it takes the destroyed bits, and it creates something out of them. That's the apparent will. So when we small c create, mm. I think that what happens is that we step into that energy, which is the whole energy of the history of 13 billion years of the universe is that. And so when you do it on a teeny tiny scale, whether it's like writing a novel or making something with your hands, or when you take nothing and make it into something, mm. you're doing that on a minuscule scale, but you have this whole energy of all of it behind you, and that's why it feels good. And that's why it heals you, because you're, you've got all that power with you. And when you don't, when you don't create, meaning consume, which is the opposite of create, and we live in a culture that's constantly telling us that it's enough to just consume, you get sick. Yeah. <laughs> you get sick, and you get depressed, and you get sad, and you get heavy, and so creativity is literally the force. It's the energy force, and so that is a very, very pretentious answer to the question <laughs> why I didn't, I knew that it would be good for me. 
I knew that it would be for, and I was scared because grief, anybody who's been through grief, you know that grief feels like, over time, it feels like you have a very bad flu that never goes away. It's very heavy. It's, you, you know, you think you're okay, but then you walk up a flight of stairs and you're out of breath. Like grief has this physical heaviness to it. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I can do this because I don't have my vitality. And you need vitality to create. And this is what I, the story I was telling myself. And then I sat down to start writing. Within a week, I could feel vitality coming back to me. And I was like, duh, you tell people this all the time. <laughs> and you forgot. You don't wait till you have vitality yeah. to create. You create and it gives you vitality. That's yeah. how it works. Because you're stepping back into that universal energy stream and it all pours into you and then you're better. You know, yeah. that's how you get better. So, um, so it wasn't hard. It was, once I got started, it was home. Yeah. It was home. I was like, oh, I'm home. This is what I do. This is what I do. This is who I am. And it doesn't mean that I got to skip grief because you don't get yeah. to. Grief is a, a bill that you can either pay now or later. I did get to delay it for a summer while I wrote this. I got to be in another kind of state and, and I'm, I'm still in grief now. It's, yeah. It takes a long time to get through it, but I think I'm in much better shape than I would have been had I not done this. Thanks to that. Yeah, for sure. Creating. For sure. And not even creating something out of the grief. I think what you might have expected me to do is write a memoir about Rhea right afterwards. But that, God, thank God, I don't know what told me that that would be actually the worst thing for me to do is to go right back into that darkness. Brene Brown says, write, um, create from your scars, not your wounds. So you right. wait till something's healed and then you can talk about it. Yeah. That's one way to do it. People do it other ways, but I think my wounds were still too, way too open. So actually, Rhea is not in this book at all. Um, it's amazing. It's a book I started writing six weeks after she died, and she doesn't she doesn't make an appearance in it. Yeah. It's just I had to do something completely different, and whatever I end up doing someday that's about her will be when I'm in the place to be able to do that. Well, you know, for every everything, there is the right time, and obviously this was the right time yeah. to write this book that was a champagne cocktail because, you know, not just you needed it, but I think everybody needs it at the moment. It's this a is grim the sort of moment. Book. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the, in the, the world is a dumpster fire right now. It's like pretty <laughs> scary and everyone's stressed. And I don't think that means we're not supposed to pay attention, but it is okay every once in a while to take a break for yeah. entertainment and delight. Um, yeah. My favorite poet, Jack Gilbert says to give, to give suffering, to make suffering the only focus of your attention is to, is to give credence to the devil. It's like, it doesn't mean you can't, it doesn't mean don't take care of suffering. It just means don't let it be the only focus of your attention yeah. or you're only in darkness. Um, you have to have put on a show every once yeah. in a while, put some ostrich feathers in your hair and dance around. You just have to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry there aren't any ostrich feathers We tonight, thought about but, uh, it. You know that Anna can tap dance, so we may need to see that. Uh, well... I don't know if these are the right shoes. That's my only um. excuse. <laughs> but, it, I mean, the book is, you know, the characters, even though it is a book that's full of, um, that is full of joy and adventure, but as, as in today, the world is a dumpster fire, but, like, it's 1940. There's a pretty big dumpster fire going, going on, on there, too, yeah. Well. So there is that sense of the importance of joy and, and of laughter and of entertainment. I mean, do you think that, you know, sometimes maybe the art of entertaining isn't really taken seriously enough or valued enough, I guess, as something that's good in its own right. Yeah, I mean, and one of the things I say in Big Magic is not only does your art not have to be good, it also doesn't have to be important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really yeah. doesn't, you guys. I mean, I think that that can be one of the things that really stops people from making work is the sense that they have to create something that has great 
significance that changes mm. the world. Somebody asked me recently, I was doing an interview with Ms. Magazine, and they said, do you think that artists have a, have a social responsibility to change the world? And I was like, no, I do not. <laughs> I think citizens do. Mm. I think citizens do, but I think it's hard enough to make art yeah. if you're going to add to it, oh, by the way, it also has to change the world. Like, yeah. that's just another cinder block that you're putting on yeah. top of your head. Um, okay, sure, if you want to, if, that's, if you're called to do that, if that feels very valuable to you, but if that becomes the metric by which, you know, is this thing important? Does it have value? Where then is delight? Yeah. And, you know, the, the character who I love the most in the book is Aunt Peg. Oh, I um, love Peg. And not to give too much away, but Vivian is banished by her family because yeah. she's dropped out of Vassar because she never took a class or went to school. Um, and all she did was smoke and listen to jazz. So they <laughs> threw her out of school and they send her to New York to live with her Aunt Peg who owns a theater company. And Aunt Peg had been through World War I as a Red Cross nurse and had mm -hmm. found out she was better at putting on entertainments for the soldiers than she was at changing their dressings. And so she got into theater. And her motto was, life is hard and sometimes people need to think about something else. And she prided herself on creating shows that have no significance to them. It's yeah. just like, you know, it's like, it's like girls and villains and damsels yeah. and then there's a show, maybe there's a dog and somebody's <laughs> juggling and like these poor people have worked hard all day, give them something. Yeah. I think this is a really honorable way to, yes. to, to spend your life yeah. is creating that for people who are really troubled yeah. and who work hard and that's absolutely okay. I think P.G. Woodhouse said, somebody, you know, pointed out that a lot of the letters he got were from prisons and mental hospitals and other hospitals and sort of expected him to make almost a, a joke out of it. But he said, well, you know, I'm bring, if I'm bringing joy to people who need there, it, there that's go. an honorable thing to do. You know, there aren't many more honorable things than that, really. So, like, writing entertainment. Sending the clowns, you know, <laughs> I really. And I've, I've been getting responses from people about getting pictures of people and they're like I'm sitting with my mother she's having her third cancer surgery I'm in the waiting room I'm reading her book thank you so much I just feel like I don't have to think about my mom's cancer surgery for yeah. 10 minutes while I'm reading and I get it because while I was writing it I got to forget that Rhea died only because I forgot that Rhea existed ever that's what happens when you're deep in creation is that you get a vacation from your own actual existence. Yeah. I forgot that Rhea had ever existed because I forgot I ever existed yeah. because I was with Aunt Peg and Vivian and Olive and Billy Buell and Celia and the showgirls in yeah. World War II and all of this. I got to have this incredible vacation from my own story and my own pain and that's a beautiful use of creativity. It really is. And it's a beautiful use of art, you know, that art can provide that service to somebody that they can transcend what's bothering them and it doesn't mean that they're, you know, pretending it doesn't exist, but they're just oh, having those. Oh, it'll come back. Yeah, exactly. You know, all, you you had, all I had to do was, like, put my work down and go have yeah. a sandwich and I'd be like, Rhea died, you right. know, but, like, Rhea died and I'm alone, you know, right. and then I'd be like, okay, I got to get back to work, you yeah. know, get, um, and, and that's kind of how it is. It's, um, yeah. it's, it, there's a very big necessity for it. And the, the book is, you know, like you say, it does go down like a champagne cocktail, but it also like um, the signature of all things, it, it gives, it's, it's got a very broad scale because even though a lot of the action is focused in the 1940s, this isn't giving anything away to those who haven't read it, but um, it, you do give the shape of, of Vivian's life afterwards and actually very significant, you know, things that mean a, a lot to her take place in, the, in this later part of her life. And as with the signature of all things, it sort of gives the sense of a lifetime and what that can look like 
for a woman because in both those cases they're very different characters and they're living in very different worlds but neither of them necessarily do what women are are expected Supposed to, do. to do yeah i mean how how important is it to you to give that sense of a broader life rather than just you know a novel could have just focused on that wartime experience but we see Vivian in her totality. I wanted to write about female shame, and I think shame takes a really long time to digest, and mm. I think it takes a really long time to... Um, I don't think that a 28-year-old narrator is going to have very much wisdom and perspective that would be really have like the base notes of what she did about shame. I think she, we could have a 28 year old narrator who has felt shame and is in shame and knows about shame, but I think you almost have to be 90 yeah. to be able to be like, yeah, so here's how I ended up processing this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and one of the things that I really wanted to write about was what do we do with those parts of our history um, that we can't clean up and fix? What do you do with the mistakes that you've made uh, that have harmed others and those people won't forgive you. What do you do with that? Where do you put that? How do you move on? Um, and, and it's not an easy question and it's not a light question and I think it's a question that you have to live from and live into and I think a great deal of Vivian's adult life was living in that question. Yeah. Um, like what do I, how do I, what do I be now? Because you know, the, the, it won't, my, my favorite line in the book is the idea that you don't have to be a good girl to be a good person. Yes. And, um, and I think it takes a really long time to figure that out, that she has done things in her life that she might have wished that she hadn't and done things that, she, that might have hurt people, but that doesn't, in the very least, mean that she's not a good person, but she has to live a long time to figure that out. Yeah. I think we all do. Um, it's a, it's, you guys are Irish. You've heard of shame. Yeah. <laughs> it's a... Um, why am I sitting here lecturing yeah. fucking Irish people about shame? So, you know, shame is like yeah. this very heavy thing. Yeah. That when you feel I just realized where I am. I'm like, you, you know what I am talking yeah. about. You know, and it's, it's very hard to get out from under it. It's literally yeah. a killer. And so I, I, I wanted to, to write about a, a woman who finds her way through that and, yeah. and by the end of her life truly can say, like, pretty happy with who I am yeah. and wouldn't have done it any differently. Which, which I think is one of the reasons why the book is so, so moving. I think when I reviewed it, I said it was frivolous and profound in equal measure, which I think is basically oh, the... That's what I think of myself yeah. as. <laughs> But I think that's the best. I, I don't think there's a better compliment. Like, that's you know, what we, maybe imagine, all of us are in equal measure. I mean, imagine, you know, no one wants to be totally one or the other, but yeah. a little bit of both is kind of perfect. Um, and, you know, in the, uh, in, in the book, it, it does give that... Uh, that experience of, you know, dealing with 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 regrets, and I think regrets are something that, especially anybody who is, you know, over thirty, um, starts. You know, you have to confront things, and, mm. and I know that you have said that when you when you did realize your feelings for Rhea, you you said you just knew. I think you put it like your you, your soul revolted against the idea of not acting on that. Yeah, my love. soul was appalled yeah. by the idea of her leaving this earth, never having known who she was to me. Yeah. It was appalling. It felt appalling. I couldn't let it happen. And do you don't th do you think that anything you know could, was it just inevitable then that you just had to to do? Something it would appear so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would it appear was, so. I mean, I I I. I don't think I've ever 
known anything more clearly than when I saw it. I mean, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't like I'd been walking around for years, you know, like in this torment mm. of, you know, I mean, I loved Rhea. I always loved Rhea. I was in love with Rhea. We were so open about being in love with each other. You know, she used to, and we were like open about that, you know, with my ex-husband. We were open about that with our friends. Everyone knew that we were in love mm. with each other, but it was the bound, the boundary was so very, very clear. Neither one of us was ever going to do anything about it. It was just something we celebrated. We were so in love with each other. And, um, and Rhea would go on dates and she would come home and she would say like, why can't they just be like you? You know, and I would say, oh, baby, that's not fair. You, you know, it's taken us 15 years to become this. You can't just meet someone at a coffee shop. And she'd be like, no, but it's just, I just want like that. Yeah. You know, and, and it was something we did. We were, and then we'd be like, all right, well, you want to go to a movie? Like it was just, you know, it was so, it was so wild. And it wasn't really, I mean, it wasn't until the realization that she was going to be taken away, that all of a sudden that was no longer acceptable. And up until that point, it actually was, we were all fine with it. Mm. Um, and, it and it was just never something anybody was ever gonna do anything about or worry about. It was like, yeah, we just love, we love Ray, I love Ray, everybody loves. But then there was this idea that was like, no, 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 no. She can't, she can't, it would be, it would be such a violation for her to leave and never have known that. It would be my, the rest of my life would be a post-apocalyptic mm. landscape if I had, if truly that's what yeah. I saw and I would think that I was correct about yeah. that. Yeah. But you, you did do it. And yeah, you I did. sure did. You stayed with her, you know, till like by her side till, yeah. till, the, very, till the very end. And I know that you have spoken about, you know, having ideas of yourself as a caregiver that didn't, <laughs> didn't quite work out. And how did you deal with that realization? Because obviously uh. caregiving is such a massive, you know, indescribable thing to people who haven't really gone through it, but how did you sort of come to terms with the discrepancy about what you thought you could give and what ended up being the reality of it? You guys, I had such a beautiful image of what a caregiver I was going to be. <laughs> and it's probably, the only thing I can say, I don't have kids, but I bet that some of you, when you were pregnant, were like this, where you were like, I'm going to be so good at this. Mm -hmm. And then you had your kids, right? Like, I'm going to be so good. I'm, I've read all the books. There you go. You know, that's kind of where I was like. I was like, I've read all the books, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be really good at this. Um, in order to be a perfect caregiver, though, what, you, what is required is a perfect patient, and Rhea was not that <laughs> at all. And, or, and no one is. That's the thing. You know, yeah. no one is, and nobody can be. It, is br it was brutal. It was a brutal, brutal, brutal. It's... it's it, it was shocking to me what it did to me, um, and, and it was shocking to me what it did to her. She was the strongest person I had ever met in my life, and nobody can go through the amount of pain and terror that she was in and hold on to that level of strength, that level of composure. Um, it's, it, you know, it's just, it was absolutely brutal, and I had, I was so humbled by it. Um, it's changed me, it's changed me forever. Um, I have such reverence for anybody who's taking care of anybody who's dying. Um, I don't know how people do this for years and years and years with people who are very chronically sick. Or, yeah. or it, I don't know how people do it. Um, it is so hard, and I do know that that something that Rhea's ex-wife, who, who showed up like a hero to save me, as did her ex-girlfriend. Everyone who ever loved Rhea never stopped loving Rhea. So at the end of her life, it was like this horde of women showed up to be like, can we take care of her? Um, and, and we all did together. And, um, and, and one of the things that happened is that I lost this idea of me as being Florence Nightingale, and I gained this idea of me being part of a team of people 
who all loved her the same amount and who all gave up their lives to take care of her and every one of us was needed because it was such a big job and it was so hard. And, um, and you know, I will say that if you are the primary caregiver of the great love of your life who is dying, you also need somebody to be taking care of you because you're yeah. also dying. You're also dying. And that's something I didn't understand and that I understand now. And I ended up being somebody who needed to be taken care of um, just, just as much as whatever care I was giving. But you had those people then around you. I your did, team. yeah. They, I mean, it was a testament yeah. to how much Rhea yeah. was loved that they, that they, that they showed up and, and they were there. Um, they were just extraordinary. And you did write, you know, really beautifully in, on social media about a lot of these experiences. Um, how helpful was that? At the at the time, you know, because I, I you would see on on Instagram or Facebook that there were you would get a lot of people responding who'd been through similar experiences or just you know sharing their their sympathies for you and just sending you their love and support. How helpful was 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 that act of of sharing what you chose to share? Obviously, you were sharing every single thing. Yeah, I feel like I've cho I, I shared a great deal more after Rhea died than I did during that time. Um, I was really open about telling everybody, you know, I'm, I'm leaving my marriage. Um, I know all of you may have feelings about that because it was the person for me to pray love and you were really excited, but I have a feeling you're all going to be able to survive it. Um, and and I, I believe in you and I think you can get on the other side of it. Um, I can't imagine that you were had stronger feelings about it than we did, but I, you know, um, everyone's going to be all right. You know, and, and, and then going to, to be with her, I didn't say much as that was happening yeah. in those 18 months. I was pretty, you know, I was pretty quiet about it. Um, it, it was, the emergencies were stacking up um, almost too much to really talk about it in any yeah. detail. Um, since she's died, I've shared things. And, and I think what I've, like, somebody asked me, like, what's your process of figuring out what, what you share and what you're public about and what you're private about and what's your, how do you find that balance and what's your metric? I don't have one other than my instincts. Mm -hmm. And my instinct seems to kind of go like this. There's a, there's a, the distance between the moment when I learn something that has, that actually is so valuable that it takes suffering away from me and when I want to tell other people about that thing that I learned with the hope that it will take suffering from them is very slim. Mm -hmm. So there, it's almost like if I've learned something, an insight that has truly helped me, and if I don't share it very quickly, it starts to feel like a burden. I had a, a teacher in India who used to say, any talent that you have and do not use becomes a burden. I also think that any wisdom you have and do not share becomes a burden because it, it's meant to be given. It's meant to be given. And so it, the stuff that I've shared is just really things that have made me, like, mm. You know, for instance, you know, right before Rhea died, when I went to her and said, I, I, and I apologized for the ways that I had failed her as a caregiver and said I felt like I, I really wanted to be better at this than I was and I wanted to be the perfect caregiver and I wasn't. And she, and she in her inimitable Rhea way, was like, dude, <laughs> she called me dude right up until the end of my death, but she was like, dude, you, you so don't get it, your job you so misunderstand what your job here on earth is to do. You, your job was never to be the perfect caregiver or the perfect girlfriend or the perfect wife or the perfect writer or the perfect anything. Your work, Liz, has been and only ever will be to find mercy for yourself. That is your job here. And so that's what you need to do now because um, you are fine, the caregiver. You just have to let all of that shit go and find mercy for yourself. That's your job and there, you'll never have another bigger job than that. And how difficult do you find that job? 
of finding that sort of mercy and self-compassion because I think a lot of people find that very difficult, even if they don't realize it. Yeah, it's the final frontier. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's where the rubber meets the road. It's gotten easier since I had this realization that um, self-abuse and self-hatred are really narcissistic. Um, that's not super fun. Nobody wants to be narcissistic. So when you really think about it, so here would be the example, like I, I, I can just, like I know you and I know just by hanging out with you, you're a compassionate person and you would not like to see people suffer. Like, oh, no. you, you know, like that's simple, right? Yeah. Like it's all over your face. You're a good, kind person. You care, like you would hate that. And, and, and you probably would love to be somebody who, who has created an interior space where they can actually look at the world with universal human compassion. It's just taking a guess. True. Also, don't right. have to know you very well to guess that you're probably brutal to yourself um, in terms of <laughs> the standard that you set for yourself and how you don't forgive yourself and how like you hold, right? So I just, mm -hmm. just guessing, tell me where I'm wrong. No, not you know, very so, wrong so far. Yeah, so yeah. hint, universal human compassion that does not include the self is not universal. Yeah. <laughs> Definition of universal is all of it. All of it has to be included and folded into it. So if you leave yourself out of that, so you're like everyday practicing compassion and kindness, but you forget to include you, then there's this big gaping hole in your universal human compassion. And also you don't really, 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 really know what compassion is because you haven't forgiven the most unforgivable person yet. You know, who's you, yeah. that's it. Like if you can get over all of this, then you can sit in the room with anybody. You know, and so sort of realizing that like, taking yourself and saying, I'm the only one who doesn't, isn't deserving of universal human compassion because I know what I do. I know, mm. I know how bad it is in there, you know, like, <laughs> I know. And, and so the answer that when I start seeing myself doing that, the, the way that I can shut it down is by just saying to myself, what makes you so special? Oh. What makes you so special that you alone are not deserving of mercy? Mm. That's really, really grandiose. Yeah. That's really grandiose and it's very vain. And if somebody, if I sat in front of you, you didn't know me, and I told you all the shitty things I'd done and they were actually the things you'd done, you would be like, oh, that, you've got to let that go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course you would. Yeah. It's what a kind person would say. You yeah. know, so why are you excluded? Why are you excluded from human compassion? Why are you so special? So that's really what has helped to really break it down for me when I, when I start attacking myself at that level. Um, I just see yeah. the narcissism in it, and it's got to stop. God, that is really true. I'm part of me now thinking, did somebody record this so I can <laughs> say it? Every, you know, every time the fear. Um, mm. But I mean, it is true that that sort of um, obsession with, like, have a, you know, basically, am I an arsehole? You know, which is, I think, what a lot of it comes down to. Like, am I really selfish? Am yeah. I, you know? Did I, was I rude to somebody? Did yeah. I just think of myself first? Um, Maybe, yeah, you know, okay, yeah. so what? But yeah, if somebody you else know, said it, I wouldn't think, well, you're clearly the worst person. In, in you are history's greatest monster. <laughs> you're rude to somebody, you know? And it's, you're just yeah. one of us. You're yeah. just one of us. And this mm -hmm. is why I love the word mercy even more than the word forgiveness, because to me, forgiveness can be a little patronizing. Mm -hmm. Like forgiveness is like, Thank you. I'm up here, and you're, you, yeah. you and I both know you don't deserve it, but I will bequeath upon you yes. the gift of my forgiveness. It's yeah. so, pay it's so, there's such an arrogance in it, and, and mercy says, we're just in the same dilemma here. Mm. 
You know, like, we're, I see your dilemma, yeah. I'm in one too. This is a very weird experience and hard to be a person. And I think we all, if, if we want to turn this into heaven, we're going to have to start expressing some mercy right away yeah. for how hard it is. You're off the hook, I'm off the hook. It's all okay. <laughs> That's mercy. Yeah. You know, and I think it's more democratic in a way. True. Yeah. <laughs> it's compassion, which is less, yeah. which is more egalitarian yeah. as opposed to, as you say, coming down from on high to sort of yeah. grant. Something. Grant or not yes. grant, withhold yeah. or, with, you know, it's just. Just all of that is just this, it's, but mercy is just so, mercy is just so inclusive. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's just come and join the human family, you yeah. know. I remember once, one time when I really fucked up with Rhea, this is, I had put fentanyl patches on her, which are these incredibly powerful pain-killing mm -hmm. patches, and I'd not taken off the barrier. And so she, for three days, 72 day, hours of the worst pain of her life, she oh, was getting no painkillers at all. And she couldn't swallow because her stomach lining had ripped. It was awful. And so this was, and I was her nurse and I didn't know that you had to take this piece off also. It's like a cigarette patch. And we couldn't figure out why she was in so, 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 so much pain. Um, and finally figured it out. And I was like, I will never forgive myself for this. I will mm. never forgive myself for this. And I remember the nurse who came and was like, oh, sweetheart, you forgot to... It's like I, I had one job, yeah. you know, and and I remember just leaving her with the nurse and going, and I hadn't slept for 72 hours and neither had Rhea. I mean, I've never seen anyone in so much pain. She was begging to die in Arabic, her first language. It was, I've never seen anyone in so much pain. And and I went in the bathroom and I just did what you would think. I just collapsed and and I just kept saying, I'll never forgive myself for this. I'll never forgive myself for this. I'll never forgive myself for this. And then somehow I got, I have a friend whose child died when she was watching him and she had turned, it's an awful story, but the worst story. And I just thought, do you think, I'll call her Mary, but do you think Mary is deserving of mercy and forgiveness? Mm -hmm. Would you do anything in the world to relieve her of that, that she carries? Would you do, I would give my kidneys to take away her pain. Mm -hmm. So she's deserving of mercy, but you're not. You're not, you'll never forgive yourself, but you instantly would take away what you could take away from her. And I just got it where I was like, if, if you're not deserving of mercy, then neither is she. If she's not deserving of mercy, nobody is. If nobody's deserving of mercy, we don't have to be sitting here worrying about who's going to heaven and hell because this is hell. Like that hell is a word, is a merciless world. That's hell. So all you have to do to turn hell into heaven is to add mercy. And it's like mercy is the portal. It's like this membrane between hell and heaven. And that's how you do it, you know. And Rhea was so good at mercy because she had been a junkie and a heroin addict long before I knew her. She was such a horrible person. <laughs> like a really, not just a drug addict, but a very bad, bad, truly bad person. She used to say to me, like, you think... You sit around wondering if you're a bad person. She was like, dude, I talked the prison warden into letting me out of Rikers Island to go home to visit my father when he was dying of cancer on a mercy visit. And while I was home, I stole his car and sold it for crack. Whoa. She was just like, whatever you're worried about here, you know? And she had forgiven herself for uh, all of it. She had found mercy for herself for all of it. And because of that, she could sit in the room with anyone in their horrible behavior and not judge them because she knew that like... Yeah, I know what that's like, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, she would draw boundaries with people, but she never closed her heart to anyone. And that's why she was the most important person in my life mm -hmm. because she had that quality. And I used to think, how am I going to, when Rhea dies, I, how am I going to feel safe and loved in the world? How am I going to feel that? And on that day on the bathroom floor crying, I just said to myself, it's okay, sweetheart. I forgive you. I have mercy for you. And in that moment, I felt like, oh, that's the Rhea quality that I'm... 
if I ever want to channel her, that's what I have to be. I have yeah. to be that with me and I have to be that with others and then she'll be with me. Yeah. Mercy's the portal to her also. Yeah. You know, so that's it, you guys. I mean, it's that simple. Mm -hmm. And if you leave yourself out of it, then you're, you're just agreeing to live in hell. You know, you just decide one day to just not live in hell anymore. And you have. And that is something that you've been able to carry, some part of Rhea that you have been able to, to carry, you know, onwards, as well as, you know, sharing her story so people who never met her know her through you. I hope so. So, well, I mean, you, I mean, the first time I heard her on Magic Lessons, your podcast, yeah. a few years ago, and I think that, like, her charisma was I so know. evident on that. She was like, right, the seeds dealer. <laughs> yeah, so. she was a weather system. Yeah. She was incredible. <laughs> she was incredible. So it's my, I always say I'm her bard. Yeah. Um, it's my great honor to, to carry her story forward. And, and carry those, those lessons, I guess, without wanting to sound trite, but it does sound like that you know, that lesson of, of mercy and compassion was something that you were able to, to, to take and going forward. Yeah. Um, so what is, do you think, that the biggest thing that you, you've learned, both about, you know, because you have been through so much in the last few years, and then you've also written a book that is, that's sparkling with joy. And what is, do you think, one of the, the, most, the most important things that you've, You've learned about yourself and about everything else, I guess. And I think, I think, I mean, I'll pass this along. This was Rhea's, so Rhea was a liar when she was an addict because that's redundant. Um, you can't be, addicts are liars. It's it, like lying is a symptom of addiction mm. in, in the way that like losing your hair is a symptom of chemo. I mean, it's mm. just, you have to lie to protect your supply. You have to, you have to. It's not, it's just a symptom of the disease of what it is to be an addict. And so she had been a liar for her entire life. She'd started using drugs when she was 12. Mm. Um, and, uh, and as I used to say to her, you needed every single one of them until the minute you didn't, she needed it. You know, she needed it to be able to, to get by in this world with all the shame that she carried. And she was a lesbian in a family, in a very Christian family. It was totally unacceptable. She was a rock and roll American in an immigrant family from Syria who just expected her to be a good woman. And she, all she wanted to do was like hang out literally in Detroit with Iggy Pop, which is what she was doing when she was 13. Um, oh. and, and like cut people's hair into mohawks with hedge clippers and do heroin. And, um, and that's who she she was, and, and it took her so long to get to get on the other side of it. But the way that she got clean and the way that she got healthy was by becoming a truth teller. Um, and and she taught me that because she's the most honest person. So when I and I want I'm, I want to make this clear because when I talk about mercy, mercy doesn't mean letting people abuse you. That's not merciful because mercy includes everyone, right? So if you're if you try to be merciful and feeling sorry for your abuser and they're abusing you, that's actually not mercy. Mm. That's actually martyrdom right? That's different. That's not the same thing. Mercy is, I'm not going to let you do this to me because it's not good for you and it's not good for me. I'm out. You know, that's mercy actually. And so, so, but Rhea learned how to be honest and she got clean by being honest and she was incredibly honest and hilariously honest. Like it just, I just, one of my favorite Rhea stories is just all of us sitting at dinner with a bunch of friends one time and we had this friend who was very always conniving to try to get something like whenever she opened your mouth, you'd be like, 
uh, that friend. Like, she's going to ask. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Kat goes, um, hey, she's from Mississippi. She's a sweet girl. She goes, hey, Rhea, what are, you, what are you doing this weekend? And Rhea goes, I'm not babysitting your fucking kid's cat, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> and, like, went right back to the conversation. And everyone was like, yes, that is how you have to talk to her. You're like, you know, and, like, but Kat, everyone thought yeah. it was funny, even her. You know, like, it was just that kind of honesty. But Rhea's motto that I loved so, so, so much was, the truth has legs. This was her, this is what she came away with after her years. The truth has legs. At the end of the day, it is going to be the only thing left standing. Mm -hmm. Everything else will blow up. All the other stories will blow up and disintegrate and turn to glitter and dust and, and it's gonna be all this drama, but the truth is the one thing that will always be left standing in the room at the end of the day. And Rhea would say, and I saw her, I watched her for years do this with people where she would say, since it's where we're going to end up, why don't we just fucking start with it? <laughs> Let's just start with it. Put it on the table. This is a judgment-free zone. Come on. because Or we can just go through 10 years of drama and not tell it. Like, let's just do it. And watching her do that year after year, I... It was in the groundwater of my friendship and my relationship with her. And I'm so astonished to discover that I have become that honest. <laughs> I'm so astonished because I never was when I was young because I was so scared. You lied to protect your supply. Mm -hmm. I lied to protect my supply of approval. I lied to protect my supply of people's love. I lied to protect whatever it was that I needed. And I just kind of don't anymore. <laughs> and it's because I was at the feet of, in Rhea school for 17 mm -hmm. years. And, I, and, and so... I was just recently in a conflict with somebody and somebody who was kind of talking with us during it said, um, well, look, here's the really great thing about Liz. You always know that she's going to tell you the truth. And I was like, holy shit, that's fucking true. <laughs> I've actually become that person. I have, oh my God, I have actually become that person. And, and I think that when I was younger, I didn't tell the truth because the world didn't feel safe. And it didn't feel like it was safe to tell the truth. That if I told the truth, everything would fall apart. And in fact, it was the exact opposite. You don't wait till the world is safe to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. You tell the truth, and that's how you make the world safe. That's yeah. how you make your world safe, is by just telling the truth again and again and again and again. And so that's the major, major, massive difference. And it's mm -hmm. this amazing, like, my friend Martha Beck, some of you may know this great teacher, she teaches this thing called the integrity cleanse, which is just simply this, you stop lying in every, and she used to set, this is how Martha cured three incurable autoimmune diseases that she had, that doctors all over the world had said these diseases cannot be cured, and she was in constant pain, and she was dying, and she couldn't eat, and her body couldn't digest, and she suddenly had this idea like, what if I just only ever told the truth? Let's see what happens physiologically. Mm -hmm. And what happened is that she set her watch to go off every 30 minutes. And it was extreme, but she came from a, she came from a culture of amazing liars. She was Mormon. And oh, yeah. where women are just like, there's so much oppression, mm -hmm. so much people covering shit up and pretending, mm -hmm. so much sexual abuse that wasn't, like so many lies that were just, and she just set her, her watch for every 30 minutes an alarm went off. And she would ask herself, in this second, am I telling the truth? Like, beep, yeah. the alarm would go off, and she'd be like on a phone conversation with someone, being like, yeah, I can't wait. I would love to see you. And she'd be like, you know what? No, I don't want to come. And she'd hang up. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, she'd be talking to her sister. She'd be like, I know, I feel so sorry. I know that's terrible that's happening to your kid. Beep. And then she'd be like, 
you know it's because you let them do this. You like she just started. She just started telling the truth, and she lost every single member of her family. Whoa! She has seven brothers and sisters who have never spoken to her again. She lost an entire religion. She became the number one enemy of the Mormons. She can't go back to Utah, and every one of her diseases went away. And she like the first time she told me this, she was like, "I'm typing this to you from the middle of Africa, where I'm laying next to my wife. She lost her husband. She lost her. She's like where I'm." laying next to my incredible wife and right now I can literally hear lions in the distance and this is the life that I get to have now because I stopped lying. <laughs> this is what it is. And she's like, and, the pe and this disease that I have, she has this bladder crystallization disease that's in one of the most painful things you can have. And so the spokespeople of this disease called her because they said, you know, we want to give hope to people because normally people can do no physical activity with this disease. Mm -hmm. Would you be willing to write something down like yesterday that you did that was active so that people can have mm -hmm. hope? And she wrote, yesterday I got up at four o'clock in the morning in South Africa and I tracked wild lions for four hours. <laughs> that is literally what she had done the day before. And she was like, and I did it by just stopping lying, you know, and clarity, ultimate clarity, ultimate clarity is when you stop deceiving even yourself, which is of course the final frontier. Yeah. Um, but the really, really good thing about life is that life will correct you when you're in your lie. Yeah. So my lie, I'm going to become the best caregiver. Life was generous enough to correct that in me mm. by beating the fuck out of me mm. until I was collapsed and had to admit, oh, that was a lie. I'm actually not supposed mm. to be that. You know, yeah. um, I had to leave marriage, my first marriage, because it was a lie to say that I was supposed to be in that marriage. And I got mm. so sick and beaten down that I had to leave. So now I have this trust that like my body, life, my spirit, and my being will let me know because yeah. everything will fucking fall apart. And that yeah. will mean that, and now when that happens, I just start asking myself, what am I lying about? Like who, who, what am I lying about and who am I lying to right now? Why am I so unwell? What's the lie that I'm telling? And sometimes the lie is, um, I'm a bad person. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the ultimate lie. Yeah. The ultimate, but, ultimate lie that will make you sicker than anything. And you do know when you found it, like that it's, your instincts tell you that something isn't something's true. Something's very, very yeah. wrong here. Yeah, something's wrong here. Time to pivot, time to be, time to tell the truth and we can wait or we can just do it now. Mm. Um, and, and so I just am getting really efficient about doing it right now. Yeah. yeah. And I, I know that... Um, you know, because you 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 have been uh, very you know you have been been open about lots of aspects of your life. But I know as as a woman in her forties who doesn't have kids, you are a woman in your forties who doesn't have kids. I am a woman who is a couple weeks away from being fifty. You're still in your forties. <laughs> Actually, I'm the opposite. I've been claiming fifty for years. I've been I like know. I'm because I think it makes me sound wiser. I'm like I'm fifty. I'm like forty-seven, but yeah. I'm as a fifty-year-old woman. So now I actually get to claim that. Honestly, uh, that's a lie I've been telling. But yeah, I'm, <laughs> I've been no. adding years because oh, I, I want the wisdom. Um, oh, the revelations are coming out tonight. Yeah, but uh, I know that there are a lot of women uh, who are also in their forties and don't have kids for whether by choice or because you know it has worked out. But have found the way that you have spoken about this very meaningful and important mm. uh, and actually and the writer Elizabeth Day who wrote a great book called How to Fail she quotes you in that there's a chapter on you know how to fail at babies and but she she writes about how just incredibly meaningful things that you you said have been and you know you wrote about it in Committed you've spoken about it in, in interviews why do you think we still need somebody to to talk about this publicly because, you know, there are a 
a lot of women in their 40s and 50s and older who, yeah. who don't have, have children, even though obviously most, most women of that age do, statistically speaking. Yeah, well, we, well, first of all, I mean, we have these bodies, aside from having these minds and imaginations, we have these bodies, and it is really the biological drive, is that you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to replicate yourself. Yes. Like, it's what everything does on Earth, it replicates itself. So, mm -hmm. so you're, if you're not doing that, you're pushing against, like, a massive biological thing also, which is, mm -hmm. is setting aside cultural norms and setting aside, you know, repression and setting aside what your mom wants you to do and setting mm -hmm. aside all of that. There's also just this, like, biological imperative, you know, that, that is that is really, really powerful. I just think that it's important to think more creatively about what what passing, so so like when you have a baby, what you're doing is you're taking these, you're passing along, you're passing along information, you're passing along data, that's what DNA is, it's data. Mm -hmm. And you're passing along data and it's this accumulated wisdom really. It's like mm -hmm. all this information about how to, about evolution is being passed along. And that's really, really cool. So before you go, pass it along um, so that it can continue. But like, let's actually think about this in a kind of a more abstract, um, since we're abstract thinkers, as human beings, we're not just this body, we're also abstract thinkers. You can do that in other ways. You know, like you can, so what are the things that you can leave behind to make sure that your body of accumulated, your DNA wisdom mm. actually just gets moved along um, and that you make a sort of photocopy of everything that you know and you leave it behind. Social media is a great place for this. <laughs> like whatever idea, like whatever it is that you know that you've learned, anything that you've learned that you teach anybody is replicating yourself mm. in a way, is, is passing along your genetic code. So, so there's that, but like, you know, it's just been the norm for so long. I mean, I think about this, this we're just at this really interesting moment in history, if we survive it. Um, but, you know, my grandmother had eight children and probably 15 or 16 pregnancies. Mm. Um, from her back, it was all that. Yeah. So there was no difference. There was no difference between them. You go back from Grandma Maud all the way back to like when we climbed out of trees, that's that same story. It's just mm -hmm. that story, that story, that story, that story, that's what a woman's life is, that's what a woman's life is. Then my mother, who was um, raised in the 1950s mm -hmm. um, and got married in 1966, had two. That's already fucking radical. Yeah. But she was still holding on to a lot of those ideas. She had two, and she had a lot of ideas about what a woman was, what a wife was. Mm -hmm. um, and in 1973, when I was four, my mother went to open up a bank account in the state of Connecticut with her money. My mother always had a job, always worked out of the house, and had just moved to this town, and it went to open up a bank account and was informed that it was illegal for a woman to have a bank account in her own name. She was married. <laughs> if yeah. she was married, because everything that she had belonged to my father. So my father had to come and sign a permission slip saying that he was aware of his <sighs> wife's money so that she was, it was illegal for mm. the bank to give her, a married woman, a bank account, 1973. Yeah. Um, but she did have only the two kids. Yeah. Um, I have zero. <laughs> and I do whatever the fuck I want, honestly. <laughs> like, that's really been my life. Yeah. Now, at the beginning of my 20s, I imitated that. Like, because it's really hard not to imitate what you've seen. So yeah. I got married at 24, I bought a house, I was supposed to have a kid, and then thankfully life and my body and my entire mind and everything broke down because it was just obviously not where I was supposed to be and I was lucky enough to be able to, to get out of it. But like, I am so different from my, I'm different from my mother, but my life is so different from my grandmother that I am yeah. almost a new species. Yeah. Like almost yeah. a new species. It's, it's, you, she would, my existence would be completely unrecognizable to her. Um, and so... Yeah, it's weird. 
It's mm -hmm. different, it's new. We don't have centuries of role models to look back on to see what did childless women look like unless they were pitied or nuns yeah. or, um, or pitied nuns <laughs> or, you know, or admired nuns or saints. Or, you know, we don't have these examples and so mm -hmm. we're making this up on the fly in real time. Yeah. Like all these modern women are just like, what happens if I do that? What happens if I have a kid and I have passions? How does that work? Guess yeah. what? Figure it out. No one knows, yeah. <laughs> you know. And and everyone's. It's all like we're. It's like we're all these like mice in a, in this new maze, you know. And everyone's like trying to figure out how to make it work. And you're hitting levers and like, is this a pleasure lever? Oh no, yeah. that was pain. Yeah. Sorry, back up. <laughs> you know. And like then we're peeking over the walls. How'd she do it? How did yeah. she do it? And I think the most important thing that I did when I was 29 and freaking out because I was supposed to have a kid and I didn't want to. I interviewed every single woman. I would meet women on the bus and be like, do you have children? What's it been like for you? Do you regret it? Is it worth it? Do I have to? Should I? Like, I was so, I didn't know, because I was like, and, and I wrote down, had a whole notebook full of all their responses. Wow, really? Yeah, because I didn't, I was losing no. my mind. didn't know what I was supposed to do. And the responses ranged everything. The answers were everything from, um, yes, I have kids, but honestly, if I could have done it over again, I, I wouldn't. I feel like I really get, like I love my kids, I gave up my life from them, they're amazing, but boy did I sacrifice my life for that and I, I kind of wish I could have done something else. Yeah. To never regretted a second of it, best thing I ever did in my entire life, you've got to. To never had them, never regretted it. Yeah. To never had them, never stopped regretting it. To everything, and I would go through these pages looking for the answer and realize there isn't one. There yeah. isn't one. <laughs> there are all these different ways that people live and there's all these different interpretations of the way they live, but there actually just yeah. isn't one. So Liz, what do you want to do? Yeah. You know, and I was like, I want to go. <laughs> I don't want to do this. I want to go. And I actually, it's been years since, like when you brought it up again, I was like, God, I haven't even thought about that in years. Yeah. It's so far removed from me. Like it would be, it's like I don't even think about it. It's just not even on my radar anymore. The idea yeah. of what it could have been like to have kids doesn't even cross my mind. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad I didn't. And I'm so glad to stand as a model of that's a way it can go, yeah. is that you cannot have kids and you can be like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank yeah. God I didn't do that. Um, and I, in fact, I'm so glad that I don't even think that anymore. Like yeah. through, my, through my 30s, I thought every day, oh my God, thank God I didn't do this. Mm -hmm. um, but now I just kind of wake up and I'm like, I want to go for a walk. I don't even think about yeah. it. It's not, even on my, it's not even on my radar. It's yeah. that gone. And uh, you, you recently posted on, on Instagram a picture of your friend, I think it's Darcy Steinke's book about the menopause, which you pointed out is a subject that, well, I mean, it's a subject that, that most women in their 40s and 50s have to at least think about, but also one that is very rarely discussed without mockery or being seen as like tragedy, a tragedy. or mockery. Yeah, that was tragedy it. or mockery. Yeah. That's the only way it's ever talked about. Do you think that the discourse about that is changing? I mean, I don't. You know, do you think that that women who are experiencing it or just about to experience it or just experienced it are be, are more open or viewing it in a different way or is it still yeah. still the same but old it's baggage? But this generation again. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like the old generation was, all of it was had to be hidden. Um, it just never could have been discussed. It was shame, it was shame based or it was terrifying. It was the end of your womanhood. Um, or if you had a lighter spirit, you just constantly make fun of yourself for yeah. sweating all the time and hilarious. Ah, I'm such yeah. a bitch. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I'm going crazy. You know, it's still yeah. like all this joke. And what I love about yeah. Darcy's book is that she's like, 
you know, I just went through menopause and I didn't find it fucking funny at all. Like, <laughs> you know, um, and and she's like, but I also didn't find it tragic. I found it mm. fascinating. And um, and and because she's of our age, this yeah. broad generation of women who are this new species. All of a sudden, there's a new conversation about it, and I think her book is amazing. It's called Flash Count Diary. Um, it is so good. It's called Menopause and the Vindication of Natural Life, and one of the things that she says is that there, it, she worked for years to try to find out everything she could to write this book about menopause, but the only conversation that was out there was about hormone replacement or not, hormone replacement or not. Yeah. Like, there's literally no other conversation being yeah. had, and, and she went and investigated it mythologically. She investigated it from a from a naturalist standpoint. She went and like studied killer whales who are one of the only other animals where the females have 30 years of post-reproductive life. Whoa. Um, amazing. And they become, the really fascinating thing that I learned in this book is that the oldest female in the pod, also like evolutionarily, why would that, what's her use? Yes. Right? What's ours? Yeah. What's her use? Why is she still alive? That's really weird. It's taking a lot of energy to feed her. Why mm. wouldn't she's not she's not doing anything? <laughs> she's not making any babies. She's not good for anything. Here's what they find. Here's what they found out about killer whales. They don't lead the pod, except for when there's a famine and a catastrophe, a catastrophic famine. And when there's a catastrophic famine, the grandmother becomes the leader because she has the deepest institutional memory of where all the food is in the entire oceans of the world. And she is the one who they follow when there is a famine. Take that, Ireland. <laughs> you know? Um, so... Bring out our whale Amazing! Like, all these grandmothers surviving the famine. I mean, come on. It's so unbelievable. But she... So she writes about that, and then she also writes about mythology. She writes about how witches, the description, all the medieval descriptions of witches, actually what you're describing is what a postmenopausal woman looks like. Mm. Hair on the chin, like the, you know, the, the, the sunken eyes, the sort of great, yeah. the terror that people had of women who had that much wisdom. Yeah. You know, the burning of them. You had to burn them because they were too smart. They didn't yeah. give a shit anymore. And one of the things... <laughs> Like, you know, and, and, and one of the things that she said that she, the way she experienced her hot flashes, which were very serious. I mean, she had some of the most, she, that's why she wrote the book, was she, had, she had something called a flash count diary where she was flashing 40, 50 times a day, having oh these like God. unbelievable flashes come through her. She came to see it as a spiritual fire. It was a crucible that was burning off the last of her cowardliness, her giving a shit about what people thought about her, mm -hmm. her need to be pretty, her girlishness was all being burned away so that she could become her true, mm -hmm. powerful woman as an adult. And then she tells this incredible story about this research that was done on these nuns because nuns are really interesting to study for menopause because when women all live together, as you know, like in boarding schools, girls will all menstruate at the same time. Well, nuns will also go through menopause at the same time. Get this. They put a, <laughs> they put a fucking infrared camera in a cloister for, women, for prayers in the dark of these nuns who are all in their 50s, who had all lived together in community for all these years. A heat-sensing infrared camera, and they would watch. And one of the nuns during morning prayers would flash in her menopause, and then it would go, and each one of them would flash. <laughs> That's amazing. I Women are amazing. <laughs> Like, that's power, like, what? Oh. It, that's like quantum something yeah. going on. That needs to be harnessed. And, they, and she, you can go on YouTube and you can see it, and it well, looks like they're bursting into flame. And they're in prayer, and they're like... <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
That's right. an interesting menopause story. More that than like really is. more than like a meme someone sent me that said like the seven dwarves of menopause, bitchy, itchy, mean. It's like <laughs> fuck you, flame, <laughs> like flame. <laughs> You know, I, I was at a protest march recently and there was this little old lady there and she had a huge sign that said, now you've pissed off grandma. And I was like, that's the postmenopausal woman of that's, just no more shits to give, you know, and that's incredibly powerful. And that, read that book, it's so, so, so good. So, yeah. so, so good. And in, um, in Big Magic, you write about the importance of not following, you know, finding your passion because passion's kind of, fizzle out, but following your curiosity, yes. um, which is, I think, a, a rule to live by in life as well as in art. But how, what, what, where is your curiosity leading you these days? Oh, God, I'm like back on a lot. Of, I mean, I, troubled times bring me back to spirit, right? So a lot of my curiosity right now is like hours a day of spiritual study again, which I haven't done since I was at the ashram in mm. India. Um, and uh, and so I'm really, really, I'm really, really interested in the mind. I'm really interested in, in the theater of my particular mind. And I was saying to my friend Annie, who's here in the audience, that like really like, it's not my full-time job, but I would say my part-time job is managing my mental health. It's like, and I'm not joking about that. It's a big job. Um, like many of us, I wake up, I'm happily asleep and I wake up and my first thought is like, oh my God, what's happening? Like it begins. Yeah. Before my eyes even open, the mental illness begins, right? And it's like, so my, like I spend a good couple hours a day like working with that. Work, how are we gonna get on, how are we gonna be all right? How are we gonna be all right in the world today? So I have like prayers that I do and poems that I do and meditation that I do and readings and study. Um, and, and I'm fascinated by consciousness. I'm fascinated by um, the difference between mind and consciousness. I'm fascinated by whatever the watcher is that's watching my mind. So I think my curiosity right now is, is definitely on that. And then what can we do? How can we work with our own minds to sort of minimize the suffering as much as we possibly can? Um, that is really, really of interest to me. Um, so yeah, it's there. But I, I wanna say this about passion and curiosity. I wanna say, if I were to say to every one of you that um, each and every one of you is given a very special talent by God or by the universe or by creation, and it's your job in life to find out what that, that, that talent is and then to foster it, to devote yourself to fostering it. And then after you foster it, you're supposed to share it and then you're supposed to create something with it that brings you joy and delight and that also brings other people joy and delight and then you're supposed to take it to the next level and you're supposed to use that to change the world. Is there anyone else who gets fucking hives when I say that? <laughs> Do you realize how insane that is? That's what we're taught. Like that is what Western culture, that is the current belief. That is actually what you are taught. And that is so inhumane. And that is so, so cruel. Also, it just logically doesn't make sense. Seven billion people, everyone's supposed to use their talent to change. How many times is the world gonna change no. when yes. all these people, it's all, it's just so, it's so vicious. It's so vicious and I see people, like this whole idea of having a purpose. Um, I recently, a friend of mine recently just said, I don't have any purpose. I don't serve any purpose. I just, what did he say? It was so beautiful. He said, I'm just perfect. <laughs> I'm just perfect. I actually don't have a purpose. Um, I'm just created, I'm just here because something wanted me here just so that I could be here and that's it. 
And that's absolutely it. And that is the opposite of what Western culture drives into you. You had better had a you better be producing. And by the way, your life should look like a corporate grid where it goes up and to the right all the time, every single year. <laughs> you know, it's so insane and it's so cruel. And it also is largely based on people telling you to follow your passion, follow your passion, follow your passion, yeah. which I think is a really mean thing to say, especially to people who don't have one, because they're like, if I had one, I would. <laughs> <laughs> It's not that I'm not following it. I don't really know. I've been looking, you know, and, and I think so many people feel such shame. They have such passion shame and they have such mm. purpose shame. And it's so brutal. It's so merciless. And so I'm always trying to say, like, forget about all of that and just be curious. Just be curious because it's such a mild little... Curiosity is so mild. It's so gentle. It will never turn on you. You know, passion tells you that you have to shave your head and get divorced and burn your house down and move to India. And you, <laughs> you might want to, but you don't actually have to do any of that. Like, curiosity just says, like, oh, a garden would be nice. You know, like, <laughs> oh, what's this? Like, curiosity literally looks down and it's like, well, that's wild. Why is that blue? Like, that's it. Passion is always like, God, tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, and you're so busy waiting for the big lightning strike that you miss all this amazing little stuff. And the really cool thing about following your curiosity is that you can follow it for a while in a direction and then be done. Mm -hmm. You know, like you can take a weekend pottery course because you're like, that'd be cool. Mm -hmm. And then you take it and then you're like, yeah, I'm not interested in that anymore. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And that's totally fine. That's totally fine. You don't have to then be like, I'm now Ireland's greatest ceramicist. <laughs> you just did a thing. You're good. You're good. Now what would you like to do? You know? And I think that people who do that feel this shame that they're like, I'm not committing to something. I've done millions mm. of these things and it's never led anything. And that's like, so the, the, the way that I always describe it is the difference between being a jackhammer and being a hummingbird. Um, and that a jackhammer is like, I'm here to do this. My purpose. If you are that, you're doing that you're doing that anyway. I'm a bit of a jackhammer, you know, but, but hummingbirds and most of the people I love are hummingbirds are people who are like cross pollinating. Oh, I'm interested in this and I'm interested in this and they move and they do stuff. And it's like this beautiful way to keep the diversity of the mm. world going. So I'm just, please, if you're a hummingbird, please just be a hummingbird and let yourself off the hook um, <laughs> because you're great. You're fine. You're grand. You don't, need a fucking purpose. You're just perfect. Really. <laughs> you really, really are. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, it all comes back to the mercy and having mercy It's like yourself. this dumb, Calvinist, crazy, Western, abusive idea that says you have to pay rent to be here. Mm. To be here on this earth, you have to pay by producing, by changing, by transforming, by having, being epic, by doing, like, no, you don't. You don't. Yeah. It's like you're, you're auditioning for a part you already got. Like, <laughs> you were invited here. You just get to be here. Like, yeah. that's it. You don't, you're not required to pay rent for your existence here. You're enough. You belong. You yeah. are loved. You're part of this. The fact that you're here is all the evidence that you need to know of that. You're good. Uh, we will have questions from the audience, but uh, before that, Elizabeth Gilbert, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, honey. It's um, a pleasure. Thanks. And I love you. you. <laughs> and.
And now, in the depths of the audience, I guess there must be a... I'm shielding my eyes with my notes, but there must be somebody with a... Hey. Wow, there are a lot of people. Oh, I have to also just... Do you guys mind if I lay down my fascistic rules of questions and answers? Um, if you get that microphone in your hand, it's going to be because you have a question. Um, I had my back to you. I didn't... Sorry, it's so dark. Um, a question, just a reminder, is a short statement. Yeah. Mm. that has a question mark at the end of it. Okay, yes. so you're not going to tell a story. You're not, you're not going to, and I will. I am such, do not test me. Uh, I, am, <laughs> I will, uh, and I have had the microphone uh, taken away from people. So just, uh, and it's not because it's, it's not I'm controlling, although I am. It's also, <laughs> it's just out of mercy to all these people who are hostage in their chairs. So, um, so just, uh, just questions only. And, and I'm an enforcer. Yes. I'll, I'll back you up we're, on we're this. We're a couple of badass, yeah. fierce enforcers up here. Questions, not yeah. comments. Just... Hi. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? You've got somebody coming through here. And yeah. oh, by the way, anybody who needs to get home, don't be embarrassed. Just go. It's okay. Yeah. You've got kids and jobs and dishwater, dogs, I don't know, just whatever <laughs> you have to do. Um, you're, you're always free to leave at any time. Uh, okay, yes. What is your question? So you've created a wonderful world within the world in the lily. And I'm just wondering, have you ever treaded the boards yourself? Oh, yes. I, I was very seriously in the theater in middle school um, and uh, in high school, but only up until when I was 16. Um, I, was a, I was really into the theater when I was a kid. And, and I actually I, mean, I read a lot, to do research for the book, I read a lot of, of, of memoirs from the time and reporting from the time. I was telling you about Moss Hart. Of, yes. um, Rogers and Hart has an incredible theatrical memoir called Act One that is so great about New York City theater in the 30s and 40s and a lot of that. But the thing I really, really, really loved about that is how fast they put shows on. You know, they would put on a new show every month and they'd write a play every week and they'd, they were just like, they weren't precious about it. They were just like, uh, all right, make a show, put on a song, do a thing. So that's kind of how it works at the Lily Playhouse in this book. Um, but really all the details that I have about what it's like to put on a play are from me being in Jesus Christ Superstar when I was in high school. Um, and I actually kind of think it's probably not different. It's probably not that different at the level of Broadway. Like it's still the same, you know, a week before everyone is sick. It seems to be getting worse, not better. Um, in this book, all the girls get crabs from sharing the costume bottoms. Everyone's got the same cold sore from sharing lipstick. There's some affairs that are happening that are blowing everything up. I mean, that was happening in high school, and I'm sure it happens in every theater production ever anywhere. So I just took my memories of that and just added grown-ups, and that was it. Um, but I think it's, I think, I mean, I think all of life is basically like high school, so it can't be that different. Um, but yeah, thanks. <laughs> Any more questions? We have somebody over there. Hi. Hi. Um, I suppose I just had a question about um, the thing that led you to write Big Magic. What what started that? What was the small bit of curiosity there? Um, I having trouble understanding your beautiful accent. Um, um, Irish people talk really fucking fast. Oh, I'm actually um, Australian. So if you if you ask me, <laughs> is she not I'm Irish? I'm actually Australian. No. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't say you were Irish. I just said Irish people talk really fucking. That, that's just true. That is true. They do. Um, if you if you ask me slowly, I'll understand quickly. It was just um, what was the germ that started Big Magic? What was the thing that made you inspired you to write Big Magic? Oh, Big Magic. Yeah. Are you Australian? I am. Ah, there we go. Um, G'day. I am. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry to accuse you of being Irish. 
<laughs> um, I, the, it, it was that I have a relationship with creativity that I've always had. I don't know why. There's so much of my life that's absolutely fucking chaotic. There are so many parts of my personal life that I've just never really been able to get straight or in order. There's so much of my mind that is really a, quite a mess. Um, but for some reason, and it's just grace, for some reason I was given a very straightforward and simple relationship with creativity. I just love it, and I believe that it loves me. I truly do. I believe that it loves me. I believe I love my work, and I believe my work loves me. And this is a line that I said in Big Magic. The work wants to be made, and it wants to be made through you. So when I'm writing a book, I don't feel like the book is an is a, is a obstacle and an enemy. I feel like we're in this beautiful relationship where it wants to be made, and it wants to be made through me. And when it's not going well, I don't rail against it. I just ask it, like, what's your love language? How can I help you? I want to make you into being, and I, and I love you, and I know you're not trying to be hard. Um, how, can I, how can I do better to love you? How can I make this work? You know, and it's, it's been a very, very beautiful, beautiful thread that's gone through my life as, as all these catastrophes and disasters and failures are all around it. Um, just creating has always just felt very nourishing to me. And I see that the general relationship that culture has with it is not that and that the general assumption is, is the suffering artist and is that it's angst, is that you, you're not serious unless it's killing you. You know, it's that all of this, and I just think this is not how I see this. And, and then after I gave that TED talk, um, I found that a lot of people were coming to me with questions about the creative process. And so I can say that Big Magic is the, is the only book that I've written that I straight up wrote as like to help people. I didn't write Eat, Pray, Love for that. I wrote Eat, Pray, Love to help myself. Everything I've done, I've either written to help, delight, or inform, or educate, or transport myself, um, except for Big Magic, where I really did feel like, and I waited a long time to do it, because I didn't, I wanted to feel like I'd earned the right to, to, to talk about creativity. So it wasn't until after I wrote The Signature of All Things, which I felt like, at the end of that book, I felt like, you know, I've written my like 150-year epic historical <laughs> novel now that's about science and the arts and love, and I feel like I feel like I kind of know what I'm doing here, and um, and I think there's also something. Again, this is mostly an audience of women as usual, and hi to the two men who came. If you're straight, <laughs> if you're a straight man and you're here tonight, I just I'm sorry I should have introduced myself. I'm Elizabeth Gilbert. <laughs> I'm a writer, um, but. I do also think that after a certain amount of time, if you've been doing something as a woman, you're allowed to claim your mastery at it, um, as, as a person. Um, but, but it's very difficult for women to do this because it, it, they, they, there's a fake humility. There's a, a, there's a humility that starts to actually become toxic. Um, and, and I think it's really useful. I think it's, I've been very served and I've been very helped by people who w are willing to stand in their mastery and who are generous enough to learn in public um, and to show what they've learned in public and to offer that. And, and so this is like the one area where I feel really comfortable saying I've achieved a certain level of mastery in this and I'm very happy to help you with it. Um, it was so funny, I was doing an interview recently with the Atlantic Monthly and the woman was, um, she, just, she just hated me and whatever. <laughs> Not everyone likes me, it's, it's okay, I'm like, I'm, I'm fine with it, but it's more, the whole, during the whole interview, I kept thinking, why are you my enemy? Like, I've never even <laughs> met you. But she was throwing these very hostile questions at me, and she said, are you comfortable being a guru? Are you comfortable with the word guru? And I was like, well, I mean, it depends on the question. You know, like, if someone comes to me 
and says, um, I want you to give me advice about how to keep my marriage together, I will send them to somebody else. Because obviously, I'm maybe not the person you want to talk to about that. Um, if somebody says, I want advice, like, how can I do this with my kids? I'm like, I'll send them to Glennon Doyle. If they ask, how can I be a woman in the corporate world? I'll send them to Brene Brown. Um, but if they ask, how can I create in a way that has less suffering in it? I'll sit down with you and talk to you about that. Why wouldn't I? You know, so that is what the urge behind Big Magic was, was just, I actually have something that might make this easier for you and more pleasurable for you, and I'm anything that I can do to help you make it less traumatic. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? Um, and I said to her, like, I've written nine books by this point. I feel like I'm okay kind of being a guru about creativity. And she was like, well, easy for someone to say who's written nine books. <laughs> And I was like, this is the weirdest double bind I've ever been in. I was like, are you suggesting that the fact that I've written nine books makes me a bad person for people to talk to? Like, it's so weird. But, but anyway, I do feel really relaxed taking those kinds of questions from people. Um, and, and I just wanted to help and put it into a form where I could get it to as many people as possible. Thanks. Do we have any more questions? Yes, there's somebody down there. Thank you. Hi. Um, I'm wondering uh, when sort of the, the earth opens up underneath you, as it so frequently seems to do, um, what do you kind of reach for to try to ground yourself in grace? Uh, you've touched on it a bit, but I'd love to hear. Oh, um, well, one of my favorite teachers, translators, writers is a guy named Stephen Mitchell, um, who has done the most beautiful translations of the Bhagavad Gita and the Tao Te Ching. He's a Zen practitioner for many years. He happens to be married to my favorite teacher, um, who is Byron Katie. I don't know if any of you know her, but um, anyway, he, he has this great line where he says, you know, when it comes to just finding, finding peace, finding your way, finding wisdom, he goes, the first thing that will happen is that the rug will be pulled out from under you. And then the floor will be pulled out from under the rug and then the ground will be pulled out from under the floor, and now you're getting somewhere. Now you're getting somewhere because there's a realization that there actually isn't any ground <laughs> under your feet, and that this illusion that you've had that, that you're safe and in control is exactly that. And, um, and so it's scary. Like, we spend our lives trying to keep rugs under us and ground under us and, and floors under us to, to make us feel safe. Um, I have always been a really high vibrationally frightened person. So I know what it's like to be afraid. I was, I, my first, literally my first memories of life are being terrified. I've been super, super, super scared for so much of my life. Um, and trying to, and what I do when I'm scared, like many of us, is to try to control and try to make everything be all right. Um, and it's not, and, it, and, um, and I think of Annie Lamott, the writer Annie Lamott talked about her son when he was a toddler in the back of the station wagon, she gave him on his car seat a steering wheel so he could feel like he was driving, but she had to take it off because it caused him so much anxiety because he thought he was. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, I'm only fucking three, I don't know how to drive. And he was like, she would look at him and he was literally white knuckling. <laughs> and this was her metaphor for how we are with God, basically, which is just like, I'm trying to drive and there's a steering wheel. No, everything I'm doing isn't working. Um, and, and, and so what I reach for, and the, like I reach for love itself, and I don't mean human-to-human -human romantic love. I mean 
when I am in my deepest terror, the relationship that I've cultivated over the years, and I've done this for 20 years. I started doing this when I was in my deep, deep depression during my first divorce. Um, there was a, a three-year period when I was in such depression that I thought, I remember thinking, this isn't a phase, this is who I am now. That's the scariest thought. I'm not going through a bad time, this is what I now am. That's the scariest thought. And somewhere in there, I, I remember longing, like we long for, just longing for somebody to take care of me. Like somebody has to take, somebody's gotta show up and take care of me. Somebody has to hold me through this. I've been so disappointed by the efforts I've made to find people to do it. They suck at it. You know, they all suck at it. Like someone has to do this. And I was and so bereft. And I remember, and I wrote about this in Eat, Pray, Love, but I remember one night in the middle of the night, and I do not know where this came from. And again, I can only say that it's grace. Getting up and writing to myself what I my entire life wished to hear somebody say the exact words that I just, that no one has ever been able to do because it's actually too much to ask of another human being to say exactly this script because this is how the script goes. This is what I need and this is what no one can give. Not even Rhea could have given this because she had to die, right? She had other things going on. You know, so, um, the script is, I love you. I will always love you. I will never leave you. I will never let go of you. There's nothing you can do to lose my love. Nothing that you could ever do to lose my love. I don't care how much you fail. You don't ever have to even feel better. You don't even have to come through this depression. I don't care. I love you. I'm with you. It doesn't matter. I don't care if, I don't care if you die alone. I don't care if you die under a bridge in a carbon box. I will be right with you. I have always loved you. I will only love you. You're my beloved. You're my precious. I will never abandon you. You need to stay up all night crying. I am right here. You need to do it again tomorrow night. I am right here. I will never get tired. You cannot, you are never going to be too much for me. I always, always, always will love you. That was the beginning of a relationship with love, capital L, that I've kept for 20 years. And I have 20 years of tens of thousands of pages of that. Tens of thousands of pages of it. And it's in my darkest hour that I reach for it. And I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's God or an angel or my own imagination rescuing me when nothing else can. I don't know. I don't care. It works. It works. I do it until I do it until I can breathe. I do it until I can go to sleep. And it's actually really, really real because each dialogue begins the same. I'll wake up and I'll or whatever I'm in, my trauma, and I'll write always, every single one begins with me saying, I need you. And the next line is love saying, I'm right here. And I say, I don't fucking believe in you. And love says, don't need you to, I'm right here. Gotcha. And I'll say, what am I gonna do? And love will say, I don't know, but I'll be with you, I love you. I'll be right with you, no matter what it is, I have no idea what you're gonna do, but I'll be right here with you. And I'll say, how is this nightmare going to end? Whatever nightmare I'm in at that moment. And love will say, that's not my department. I don't know. <laughs> but I'll be with you. And I've always been with you. And I've never not been with you. And there's nothing you can do to lose me. And I just adore you. And I'm right here. And I remember once recently sh shouting on the page, if you can't make this go away, tell me what to do or tell me how this is gonna end. What the fuck use are you? And love wrote, I am company in your darkest hour and I will always be that. I will always be that and that is how I do it.
That's how I do it, when the ground is gone, when the floor is gone, when the furniture is gone, when the other lover has gone, when I've not been forgiven, when I've failed myself again, when my addictions flare up, whatever, it's back to that. It's back to, I need you, I'm right here. And I do keep looking for someone who will do that, but it's a lot to ask because <laughs> they would have to be, like sometimes people just have to like um, go to the bathroom or something, like they can't. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like they can't be on call all the time. And, um, and that voice is on call all the time for me, all the time. Um, you're free to try it. Give it a try. And if you think you can't do it, I will argue that you've done it already. You've probably, I guarantee, at some point said those words to someone else, a child, an animal, somebody who is suffering, a friend. You've said, I'm right here, I've got you, you're okay, I've got you, I've got you, I'm not leaving, I'm right here, you've, you've all said it. And if you haven't said it, someone said it to you, you know, um, and so you know how to do it, you just don't know how to do it inward. And again, that's the final frontier, but man, if you can do that, the world's a safer place. Yeah, thanks. Okay, I think we might have time for one more question. Yeah. One more. No pressure. Uh, Make yeah. it a great one. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Um, yeah, so I heard you on the radio, and uh, you were interviewed um, here in Ireland, I think maybe a few weeks ago, um, which was great. Really enjoyed it. And you talked about um, forgiving our mothers. About which? Forgiving mothers. Forgiving the mothers, yeah. I didn't say forgive. I said mercy. <laughs> It's a big difference. It's a big difference. Okay. I thought you said forgive. Maybe I was wrong. But anyway, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this came out of... Um, I, was, I was at a workshop at a, at a conference recently, and somebody asked a room with about this many people in it, mostly women, like exactly this kind of room, how many of you are terrified of ending up turning into your mother? <laughs> I'd say 98% of the room stood up. And I thought wow, that's, were they that, are they all that bad? I mean, all of them, and I was looking at the room and I'm like, you're all these like pretty successful, interesting, intelligent, educated, healthy, affluent, mostly because you could afford this workshop, people. <laughs> Was she that bad? Is it that much of a nightmare, right? Was she that much of a nightmare? Now, I understand as some of you are like, oh yeah, she was. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I believe you, and I've heard, you know, I know that there are some absolute horror stories, true, true nightmare horror stories. But my heart in that moment broke for the mothers. Um, and I just thought, there's something, something wrong about this. And it's, I don't mean wrong that it's mean. I mean wrong that something has to shift in whatever our expectation is about what a good mother is if this many of them fail at it, right? Like, is it that the definition of a good mother is wrong? Um, is it that it's just an impossible, you know, what I ended up thinking was, it's not, you know, we always talk about, and I wrote about this on Mother's Day because I was thinking about how all the Mother's Day posts are either like, very sunny, like, Mom, you're the best, thanks, love you. Um, or, you know, like, this is the saddest, worst day of my year, I had the worst mother on earth. I'm not saying that lightly, you know, and then they'll be like that. Um, or it's, but I just thought, and then there'll be that sort of light thing that people say, like, such a, such a tough job, such a hard job being a mother. I am um, not a mother, but I know this. It's not a hard job. It's a fucking impossible job. It's an impossible job. And what I mean by, I don't mean that lightly. What I mean is that the 
standard by which we decide that somebody is a good mother is so impossibly high. What it means is that you cannot have a self. You cannot be a self. And what I was saying was mercy on the mothers. What I meant was mercy on your mother for, for failing at that, you know, um, for, failing to, to, for failing to not be able to not have a self for failing at like not being able to have a raging temper, not being able to have depression, for failing at not being able to have desire, for not being able to have disappointment, like all of those things to be a good mother, or you're supposed to tuck it all away, tuck it all away. It's all that, you're supposed to tuck it away because all of it is about sacrificing everything for these children. And God help your mother if she wasn't able to tuck that away, if she wasn't able to tuck away her addictions, her compulsions, her mental illness, her desires, her fears, her regrets, um, her failings, her controlling, her violence, her her abandonment, all of it, you know? Um, and, And so again, mercy doesn't mean that what happened to you is okay. Do you get that? It doesn't mean that what happened, because I got some pushback on that from people who were like, How, you, people were victims of their horrible mothers and you're like, no, I'm not saying that what happened to you was okay. Mercy, once again, is all of us standing in our shared dilemma, our shared dilemma of humanity. It's not saying that what happened was all right. It also doesn't mean you ever have to see that person again. You know, as a, this great, wonderful monk who I loved and studied with in India told me, we have to love everyone, but some people can only be loved from a safe distance. Be smart. <laughs> be smart. Some people can only be loved from a safe distance. My friend Martha Beck says, your rage, when you're with people who enrage you, your rage is a sign that a boundary has been cl- crossed and they're too close. Reestablish the correct distance and the rage will fade. Right? The rage will fade, so set that up so that the distance is right and you won't have to be so angry. You know, but all of that is a, is a bigger question. What I'm more talking about is, is to see with mercy her own dilemma, whatever it might have been. It doesn't in- exclude your suffering. It doesn't mean that you didn't suffer. It just means she did too. That's it. So it's like now we're two human beings in this weird experience on this weird earth school recognizing each other's shared dilemma. That's what I meant by mercy to the mothers. And I, I didn't mean that you have to put away your own pain or that you should stop doing the work that you're doing to heal from whatever happened. I just meant there's something wrong with a culture where 98% of people will, people who are doing pretty well. I'm not, look, I wasn't in a prison. <laughs> I was in a $300 a day meditation retreat with a bunch of people who had $300 a day. So like something had gone right, you know. Um, But I was like, why is this so terrifying that you're going to turn out to be your mother? Why is it so terrifying? Um, And wouldn't it be actually more merciful to, to surrender to being like, I am okay with being exactly like my mother, which is to say somebody struggling through the dilemma of having a human experience and doing the very, very, very best she could with what she had. How about that, right? Would that maybe be a more merciful position to take rather than the resistance of don't ever let me end up like that? Um, So that's what I meant. Um, And I hope that makes more sense. Um, And to anybody who is a mother thinking that you're fucking it up 10 ways to Sunday and that you're terrible about it and you're ruining your kids and they're going to talk about you in therapy for the rest of your life, they they really might. They really might. But mercy... (laughs) Whatever, like mercy on you too. Mercy on you too, right? Mercy, mercy begins at home with self and then expands outward and eventually includes everybody. Um, so thank you all so much, so much love. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, sweetheart.